Well, boys, looks like you started the fun without me. You're all sick. Every last one of you. We're going to need a bigger gun. What's the matter? You scared of things that go boom? My name is Eric. I'm joined on today's episode, of course, by Michael Kester. Hi. The two movies, Michael, they are Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down, and The Witch, Who Came From the Sea. Yeah, you're furious at having to type all those letters into the titles, I'm sure. Don't even get me started. I had to put an H in marijuana last episode. (laughs) Hey, by the way, that episode uh, came out awesome. If you have not listened to the Marijuana Criminal Lovers show because you couldn't find criminal lovers or you couldn't sit through a mere 56 minutes of an exploitation film, go listen to that show anyways. We really didn't spoil anything and we kind of talked about the larger genre, but that was uh, it's the start of our journey. Yeah. I know it's pretty early in the year, but I didn't want people to miss it. Yeah. No, it was a good show. I think this is going to be a good show too. Yeah, I have a I have a request today for this show. Oh God, you want me to talk in Spanish? Yes, <laughs> yeah, the whole time. I would really. The, I was thinking, you know, what is the highest purpose we could have of this show? I would like to demystify these two movies, cool, if possible. Yeah, I know it's difficult because they're kind of like whoa. Even tie me up, tie me down. I mean, I really think that about the witch, but tie me up, tie me down is like. Mm-hmm. What is Almodovar doing here? Mm-hmm. And if we could try to like solve these films a little bit, that's the show that I would have wanted to hear before I had a million conversations with people trying to bounce these goddamn movies off them mm-hmm. this week. But yeah, what uh, what else are we doing on this show before we get into it? Oh, well, you know, we got the Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash double feature. Go there. Is that where I can find previous episodes of the show, even though they've been pulled off the internet? Uh, not explicitly, but if you pay a little bit of money, then a hundred percent. Oh, great. They're not just sitting there, but you know, it's like, you, you have what, like a some... hundred episodes on there 200 episodes. Um, you know, we've been doing 52 episodes a year for 15 years or so. So like 300, 14 and change 300 episodes is what you're saying. It's like, I think, I think we're like talking, like pushing a thousand, maybe it's like in the last three quarters of a thousand. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot. Uh, more there. than a thousand movies. But that's not including the additional content, right? Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. There is a lot of that. Hopefully that Patreon gets up high enough that we can clear some space in the schedule to make more additional content this year. Sure, why not? What the fuck? No shortage of things I want to talk about this year. I'll fucking right. tell you that. For real. All right. So that's patreon.com forward slash double feature. It's early in the year. Join up on there. Come with us for the the ride here and uh, also recommend some movies because we're still building out that schedule. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. For today's movies, do we have some kind of reason these two have glommed together in the double feature? To me, I don't know. I can't really pull it down from the nebulous cloud of my understanding, but it definitely has to do with like it's their bizarre sort of reverent treatment of women while doing the absolute opposite of that. Yeah. Uh, That's definitely like in here for me. Well, we, you know, being very transparent, like we saw the witch who came from the sea and in my life, and I think I'm going to guess it was the same for you. There were only two options. Immediately talk to Michael about what the fuck was that or 
put it on the show like right away. Right. So we just like fought and fought over it because it's, uh, I mean, you and I fought United against The Witcher King from the sea, right. <laughs> trying to figure out like, damn you movie, what do we pair with this? Because it's so bizarre. And we thought, well, Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down is kind of a bizarre movie by a filmmaker we know. So after many failed pairings, which probably would have been good, right? we landed there and I think that'll give us a little bit of stability mm-hmm. to try to... Yeah, that's also a big part of it. Fuck around with these movies and yeah, figure out what's going on. And, you know, we're going to spoil them too, especially these right. movies trying to get to the bottom of what the hell. And Pedro goes first? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So anybody who's not familiar with Pedro Almodovar, we've done a bunch of his stuff on uh, Double Feature. He's easily probably the most successful director out of Spain. And there are a few. But he's probably the most successful. So much that a couple years ago, you know, his movie, his movies get, you know, fucking Oscar nominations. He basically invented Antonio Banderas. Like all of these things. <laughs> um, so all of good. these things we owe to Pedro Almodovar. But if you're not familiar with him, I was thinking about it while I was watching Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down. And I think I can I I I came up with this morsel of a phrase that will make people ravenous to watch his entire uh, catalog. Drama Dovar is like if a Mexican telenovela was remaking a John Waters movie. This is uh, hard for me to hear because I stumbled around the phrase charmingly insensitive for a while and decided Mm -hmm. that doesn't quite hit it, but Mm -hmm. it's sort of there. But yeah, it's like, it's kind of pulpy in a way. Yeah. By way of John Waters, it's pretty good. You know, there's obviously a lot of color flourishes. The, 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 the plot lines are extremely convoluted, which is very telenovela-esque. It's, you know, very melodramatic. The performances are extremely over the top. All of the camera angles are very telenovela-esque. But it, the punchline of the movie, which is just an undercurrent more than it is anything else, is very John Waters-esque, where just sheerly by what you are watching on the screen, that is the joke. There are sort of visual punchlines, like when you, you know, fuck a little robot scuba diver, or I, I don't know, you know the scene? That scuba diver is doing most of the work in that scene, <laughs> so don't. The clip of this movie that really brought this out was um, there's this really dramatic moment. I think it's right after he fucking like headbutts her and knocks her like right when he like right when the tie me up portion of mm-hmm. tie me up tie me down really kicks in and it's sort of like smash cuts to that weird like backyard barbecue performance with the guy playing the trumpet oh yeah that moment to me that was when i was like this is i, I just got a i got a tingle of john waters which you know, these guys are peers, if anything else. They're not, it's yeah. not Almodovar borrowing from John Waters, and it's not John Waters borrowing from Almodovar. I was watching that scene going like, did you give this to Morricone with a song in it? Oh my God, Or would I that know. have thrown him for a loop? Let me point that out too. Um, this movie opens, the opening credits are some of the most captivating moments of any film. You know, I, we watch movies all the time and I put one on and and historically in the world, you know, you start a movie, you know, there's some opening credits, you're getting comfortable, you're putting your phone over there, you're grabbing your drink, making sure it's close to you, all of these things. This movie starts with those, those 
diffuse backglow mm-hmm. of the text credits with like the slow uh, swell, the score swell. And I'm like, oh man, this score is really good. And the second you have <laughs> the thought that the score is pretty good, it says music by a Neo Morricone. Yeah. Well, he made sure he nailed that part. Yeah. That was the, <laughs> oh, my name's going to come up. Hit it here. The score, it got, I, I'm, I apologize for, I can already tell this is everywhere, but like, look, I don't know if we're going to talk about the score much and I just have to point out how weird it is. And I don't know, like, I know this movie has uh, some controversy over not using a ton of the score that he wrote, but there's there's sort of three elements to the score of this mm-hmm. that bring it from, oh, I've got this, Almodovar, I've totally got this for the show, I can do this. And then I hear the score and I'm like, this is weird, like the witch who came from the sea. I don't know what's going on. Right. But it's kind of this blending of the the romantic comedy themes with like something creepy or sinister. You know, there's there's these three sort of different tones that all go at once. There's jazz mm-hmm. and like real elevator to the gallows style jazz. And then there's sort of a discordant bells kind of thing. And then there's the strings. You know, it almost sounds like something out of like the fucking ice cream man or something, you know, Mm -hmm. like one of those era horror. Yeah. And I almost wonder if, like my mind is saying, oh, they put a Morricone piece in here, decided it wasn't mysterious enough. And some producer was like, uh, put horror strings over that. Because they all, I hate to say this about all hail Morricone, right? Like I don't, don't dare speak, uh, potentially speak ill of his name, but it almost sounds like the notes don't go together. Right. It sounds like two totally different pieces of music, which is wild to me. Well, let's logline it. We've been talking about it 10 fucking minutes. What's this okay. movie about? Yeah. Logline is actually surprisingly easy for an Almodovar movie. It's no less bizarre, but it's certainly more linear. A recently released mental patient, right? Banderas, a recently released Banderas created, you got to do it like it's Frankenstein. Yeah. (laughs) A recently released creation of Almodovar called Antonio Banderas (laughs) is now free walking the streets. And Almodovar's monster is released from a mental institution. All right. So when a mental patient gets released, he decides to convince his uh, female fixation that he would be a great father by tying her to the bed until she loves him. Right. Great. Which the title is really just on point. You know, tie me up, tie me down. That's the that's the entire plot of the movie where the me in question is the former porn actress whom Antonio Banderas's character fucked one time prior to getting locked up. Or no, in the midst of being locked up, he escaped from... <laughs> He escaped from the institution one time, went and fucked this girl. And then now as he's leaving the institution, the uh, head mistress, the nurse ratchet of the institution whom he was fucking uh, asked him what he's going to do. And he says, I'm going to get married and have kids and find a job and start a family. And then he goes and I mean, real go getter. He's not, there is no, he's not leaving anything up to chance. I think this movie is good for the exact reasons people probably hate it. Yeah. So if you hated the kind of plot, if you hate what this movie's about or what it's doing, stick with us on this. 
but yeah, this is a you know this is a movie that spends most of his time like the he gets out of the the mental institution pretty early in the film. He immediately goes to her set, kidnaps her, and then like the movie doesn't really a lot of movies that would follow a plot like this kind of end with the kidnapping and getting away. But this is sort of the rare movie where like his uh, plan works and he basically kidnaps her right in the beginning and then just convinces her that he is the lover of her dreams and that they should spend their lives together, which by the end of the movie apparently works. I mean, that's my read of the, Mm -hmm. the film. Although there's a sad cry in the car, but everybody seems to be getting along. Yeah, no, the movie the movie ends on a happy note, which, you know, you never really question whether or not that's going to happen. That's really one of the things I like the most about this movie. Um, and I think that's sort of what you're alluding to, is that it is incredibly dark subject matter from the page, mm-hmm. but the execution never lets you like get below like a eight, on the good time scale. Yeah, which is weird, right? Yeah. I mean, like the conversation, they just have sort of these, you know, catty, but like cute rom-com conversations as he's triple nodding the cord around her arms and tying her to the bed. He goes, do you need anything while I'm out, sweetheart? And she goes, tape that doesn't rip my skin off, dear. (laughs) You know, those moments are really the the crown jewels of this film to me. So I guess before I kind of go into what I think is really smart about it that maybe just uh, doesn't read with everybody. And, you know, whatever, film is subjective, so feel free to start writing emails or whatever. But do you get the... It seems to be a lot easier... From uh, from our friendship, I've certainly noticed, and from doing the show, I've noticed for you to come to a movie on its own terms and not really feel the societal baggage of yeah, I can't fucking believe this. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's like I haven't detoxed enough from Twitter or why that is. <laughs> but when you're watching it, do you feel any of this sort of like I can't believe they've made a movie that would dare put this idea into the zeitgeist? Not really. Because this is a movie about, you know, like the good guy. Yeah, the nice guy. The nice guy, yeah. If the Mm -hmm. nice guy could just tie a woman down and make her see what a great guy he is, that he would win her over. Sure. And then does. Yeah. And because of the way the movie plays it, like it kind of plays that part of it. I mean, it's farcical, but not... Not not about that. Not about that, exactly. Yeah. Not about that part of the plot. It's like, well, we're here to do this plot and maybe we'll have some laughs along the way. Yeah, I mean, I when it comes to something like that, this is actually a conversation you and I had, um, or I had with you while you just like, were reading my messages about The Purge. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> which is like, this plot would probably upset me if it weren't one movie out of a hundred that tell me the other thing. Mm. I feel like it is a very storied narrative about the nice guy in intelligent society being a villain and needing to do some work on himself and being a scumbag and being, yeah, I see what you mean. And so if you want to do one Almodovar comedy about it, like I'm, you're not going to ruffle my feathers because I feel like the conversation on the other side, the volume is so loud 
that Almodovar isn't, he's not going to convince anybody that you should go out. That's maybe what it is, right? The tone of the movie is not, hey, nice neck beard. You should go out and kidnap your friend's own lady until she realizes that deep down uh-huh. she should be not with those creepy dudes and she just needs a nice guy like you. Quick tip, also steal her mustache if you're going to do it. You want to steal her mustache and wear it. I'm not sure who he's disguising himself from, which is one of my favorite jokes. It's just (laughs) such low-key humor. Yeah, Like he steals a mustache. Don't know why she has a mustache on the mannequin head ready to go. And then wears it as a disguise. And I can't tell for who. The times (laughs) he puts a mustache on... Like he he seemingly only puts it on when he doesn't need it. Yeah. But like when he's hiding from the drug dealers, he could really use a disguise. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. doesn't wear the mustache. Yeah. It's so funny. I have no idea what's <laughs> going on there. Yeah. I mean, look, here's my key to this whole thing and, and why I have affection for this movie is, you know, where this film is an ugly reflection of relationships, that's a critique of relationships, not a critique of the film. Mm-hmm. This film does play straight the mere notion that a guy, an Antonio Banderas, 1980s guy, man, um, what's the, there's a Spanish word even for the sort of like, you know, toxic masculinity, but it was the 80s, so we meant it in a positive way, you know, that. Yeah. But yeah, we totally fucking have that here and we still do. This idea that you could just be, you know, a manly man so hard that you'll win a woman over and she'll just be like forced to marry you. This is a very Beauty and the Beast kind of idea. It's an idea that I think probably has a lot more roots in maybe Spanish literature than it does here. But basically Beauty and the Beast, right? Or the idea that... um, I hadn't thought about that. We see it with like ex-convict movies or anything where a guy gets married so he can, like his worst impulses are settled down. Mm-hmm. So she can, um, I mean, fuck it, let's just stick with Beauty and the Beast. So she can tame him. Sure. Right, and and he becomes like more mellow and a better person. Sure. All because this woman saw a, a dude who's terrible and showed up for him and believed in him and now he's a, a great dude. And I think what this does, you know, it calls out the entire notion of trying to to tie someone down. You know, the idea of, you talk about tying me down as like getting married. Correct. Settling down, right? Mm-hmm. It might be discussed in society, especially at that time, like that's an achievement. Mm-hmm. That that's what you have to do. You know, somebody who is a macho dude in society their next steps are go start a family, traditional values. You know, you have to go find a woman and talk her into a relationship. And I remember hearing this from the generation before us all the time, stories like growing up, stories about how older couples, like, oh, how'd you guys meet? You know, when you're a kid and you're introduced to older couples. And so many times I would hear the same refrain from the woman telling the story, which is like, I hated him, but he made me go on dates and laugh, laugh, and now we're married. Right. Which was always kind of an ugly notion to me, but whatever. Again, very Beauty and the Beast type of stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think what this movie, what it's doing that we so often 
take other movies to task for, and I think this falls right in the category, is they're representing reality as it is, not reality as we wish it was. Mm-hmm. You know, this is something that uh, we'll talk about music maybe a little bit in the next movie too. But this is something that music is really good at, is being a capsule of what it's like during an era. Not Mm -hmm. the values we think are good, the things that we'd like to, uh, ideas we'd like to present to the conversation, but merely, I think Almodovar is doing this movie and kind of going like, this is a ridiculous notion. Here's what it looks like to its logical conclusion. Mm-hmm. Even if he's not saying it's ridiculous, like it's it's actually not even, I think, morally, his job to go, here's a thing that happens in society and I think it fucking sucks. All he really has to do is go, here's kind of how relationships are. Dudes chase down women and have to convince them that they're great guys until they'll, they'll change from I hate you to I will marry you. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's almost like they just psychotically have to go out there and like literally fucking tie them up to get them to realize what a good guy they are. Mm-hmm. And I don't even think Almodovar has to go, and isn't that ridiculous? Right. I think all he has to do is go, let's push this to 10 so we can really, like if we're just going to make a, a cultural relic of a cultural document of like, this is my big fucking fixation right now. Sorry to bring this up on every show. <laughs> if he's just going, I'm going to make a movie, I'm going to make a romantic comedy about how romance really is. So he takes this facet of human relationships, specifically chasing, and he pushes that to an extreme for the purposes of comedy, I think that actually makes it read way better today because it's also a comedy. So it does kind of tilt its hand a little bit. And the fact that she like unbiably just snaps and loves him at some point. Right. I can't tell. I don't know if you found a great moment in the movie, but like I think it would be fair for an audience member who hasn't really... uh, you know, who who doesn't think about the movie the same way I do to look at it and go, I don't buy how she falls in love with him. Yeah. Because she seems to just like walk out of one scene not loving him and then be like, wait, I do. It's that moment and it's it's not helping the case that you're making. But it's definitely for me, it's that moment where she sees that he has he has befallen physical harm in defense of her. That's I think the moment where she goes, oh, he's a protector. He's a, he's a, he's going to, he'll, he'll put him, he'll put me before his own physical well being, which again is, is really, that's just like a wet dream to the nice guy agenda, yep. right? But also, there could be a little bit of truth in it too. I mean, that's the part that I think like this is better read just as a, a representation of, of how relationships are then this is how they should be, and it's satirical. It's certainly biologically, I think, ingrained. But also the other thing, the thing about this movie is that it's about Stockholm Syndrome. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, like Stockholm Syndrome is when it's bad. But there's no difference between (laughs) Stockholm Syndrome and this movie, right? Right, yeah. Like Stockholm Syndrome is the idea that when a person is held captive, eventually they sympathize and either fall in love with or fall in line with, um, speaking of John Waters, their captors. Uh-huh. And 
this movie is sort of that, except Stockholm Syndrome is sort of, it's treated as like a, a mental problem that needs to be worked out. You know, you go, well, mm-hmm. Patty Hearst robs a bank and everybody goes, she's been brainwashed. She needs to be deprogrammed, right? That's Stockholm Syndrome. Mm-hmm. Tie me up, tie me down. Is it just took her a while, but she came around. I also love that both Almodovar and John Waters were very much like cast centric directors. I mean, they so much that John Waters has a character named Pedro Almodovar in his movie. <laughs> oh, okay. no, you mean a troop. You mean like the. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Troop. Yeah. Yes. The Dreamlander type. Exactly. <sighs> um, Obligatory note about how this started NC-17 and how depressing it is that Americans are afraid of sex. All right, The Witch Who Came From the Sea. This was weird. Why did you see this movie? Let's start let's there. Let's do the. I was just going to say, let's start there. But I think, I think you should start with your series of events that brought you to this film because mine will be more interesting. Really? Okay. Well, I'm going to return to mine a lot because it's the entire lens I saw this through. I know, I know. So you do yours and then, yeah. I'm living in New York now. I saw this at one of the 35 fucking, you know, independent neighborhood art house places in New York. Mm-hmm. IFC Center, which used to be the Waverly where Rocky Horror, the big midnights of Rocky Horror started. Mm-hmm. And they were showing it in a series of four films. I went to all of them because I'm insane. But in sort of like amping people up, I guess, for the movie Censor coming out, that's probably the way to describe it. Mm-hmm. In anticipation of Censor, they were showing these four movies. They showed Deep Red, Basket Case, Rabid, original Cronenberg's Rabid, mm. and The Witch Who Came from the Sea. So I'm going to stop you right there. Please. That list of four films um, has an extreme outlier. And it's the one we're covering today. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, well, I sort of went, I saw, the reason I saw this movie is because it was... It's because you saw the list of four. In programming the with three the other were, three. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Yep. And uh, yeah, it definitely stood out. Yeah. Um, so mine, a little bit different. little bit, um, this is a version of something that... You know, we talk a lot on Double Feature about how sometimes you just come across some fucking slimy video. We talked video nasties a little last week, but mm-hmm. you come across a slimy DVD in, in Blockbuster. Oh, fuck, that's censored too, right? I mean, yeah. all of this is like kind of talking about video nasties a little. It's all you just like come upon it. And so we always talk about how that sort of died as films uh, went to video and ultimately DVD and digital. And you can't really like discover movies that aren't being fed to you, right? Know what lurks on Channel X. Right. Except, and I will talk about this now because I feel like um, Statute of Limitations is over. Uh Uh-huh. Except there was this place on the internet called um i don't remember the name of it or i do but i'm not gonna say it but there you could download movies illegally oh my god um what are we doing and that place was wild because you could find all sorts of weird shit that didn't even may not have even been a movie may not Uh have it may have just been spyware may have been steal this film too right so that's literally the name of that documentary (laughs) i don't I lived on this website every now and again because I was searching for the sh- the undergroundest shit I could find. 
And no joke, Eric, I'm just fucking, I visit the site and it's like, you know, newly uploaded, blah, blah. It's called The Witch Who Came From The Sea. I'm like, sure, I like witches and the sea. So, so this is on like random movie roulette. You basically yes. Saw this so movie. I I download this movie. Um, it's just sitting on my hard drive for weeks. And then one night, me and our uh, mutual movie star Rob Vignison are sitting up. It's probably three in the morning at our apartment in Chicago. And I'm like, I got this movie about like a witch who came in from the sea. Oh my god! Do you want to just like watch that? And he's like, sure. So it's he and I in the absolute dead of night in Chicago, and we flip on this movie. Uh, you know, we're fucking 24. And we finished the film. For people not keeping tab, that means this is a long time ago. Yeah. We, thank you. We finished the film and probably said all of three words to each other and then just went to our separate bedrooms to retire. There was no conversation. We were like, there was like sort of this like palpable, we probably shouldn't have watched that together because it may have affected our relationship. Like, (laughs) right. And, and we just, that was it. And, and he and I will bring it up every once in a while. And it's really just like, oh man, that one. And we'll just kind of like scoot it aside. So imagine my surprise when uh, you send me this fucking theater card <laughs> from the IFC website uh-huh. going, yeah, I'm going to go see this movie. And I'm like, you're fucking what? Yeah. Now, of course, I have this shit on DVD now because, you know. Yeah, yeah. Long live physical, I guess. But um, part of the reason I saw it is many people were like, oof. The witch who came from the sea. Then I'm like, why do you guys know about this? I've never yeah. even heard of this. Which leads me to believe that, like, I feel like everybody, you know, you're on the bus with ten people who have seen the witch who came from the sea, but nobody wants to talk about it. Yeah, very strange. Anyway, so yeah, it's it's a movie we've talked about. Midnight movies, creepy discoveries. This movie. You're talking about programming it with a list of four other films in anticipation of a fifth. We talked about struggling to pair it, which really I think is actually what we need to say is this isn't like other movies, period. Yeah. It's not like other there's and it's not that it's, you know, it's not fucking Chelsea girls. Right. It's it's, not not like other movies in the sense that is it a movie at all? Yeah, you watch it and you just go, this is obviously part of a bigger movement of which there are no films or part of like a timer generation I've never heard of that, you know what it was like is discovering like the first Jalo movie or something that I ever saw, first Herschel Gordon Lewis. Like it gave me that feeling where I go, But it's not the same, it's not the same as when you watch Daisies and you go, I understand the whole movement in this Uh, 70 minutes. (laughs) Yeah. It's not like open and shut case on the exploration of check new wave yeah and there's there's so (laughs) few other movies that i mean there's there's movies that sort of i don't know look we haven't seen every movie that ever exists maybe there's a bunch more of these floating around out there but i don't feel like yeah i feel like if i ask people that they will hey name a movie that's like the witch who came from the sea they're going to name movies i've seen that i don't think are like witch who came from the sea well and it's a film that we talk about this on the show a lot, but it's a film that it's not any fun to watch. You know, it it has a lot of these like 
midnight movie grindhousey elements that should endear you to being like, oh man, there's fucking tits and there's violence and she fucks a ghost football player. But none of it is presented in a way where you want to watch it with your best friend at night. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I think part of um all right. So I I discussed this on our first episode talking about log lines this year. Mm-hmm. This was the weird movie I was referencing. Yeah. The unspoken title of uh, the weird movie. But when we got out of this movie, there was this very strange race to kind of log line the movie. Mm -hmm. I would almost describe this as suspect. We came out of the theater and there was sort of this conversation that was, everybody was, was throwing in, wow, yeah, wow, that was, wow, strange, wow, that was strange. Well, it's not, I mean, What's strange about it? You know, the plot's pretty forward. This is the plot. And another person in the, in our group of four or whatever, three standing outside the theater would go, yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, like this is, we all know the movie was about this. This was definitely the plot. And they'd throw out a log line. So we were all sort of taking our turns throwing out log lines. And just for the purpose of our show, the log line is probably something like, After being raped by her father, a woman has a psychotic break and kills lots of men. Quick and dumb, that's the logline. Do you have uh, any dispute with that or are we basically there? For some reason, I feel like it's important that she's an aunt and not a mother. Okay, I mean, yeah. I don't know why that feels important, but I feel like there's... Seaside town, there's not a lot of witches. I mean, we could spend quite some time going. But I just think, I think it's important. I think the aunt element of the character is important because it gives her sort of an attachment to a group of people, but not like a responsibility to them. So then we start, when we do this, immediately we start jumping into the other elements, which as I said on the first episode is kind of why you want to do this. But I thought it was interesting that this uh, group of friends we saw this uh, movie with, nobody, and nobody at the theater standing outside the box office. I mean, this was one of the first times I saw a movie with like a giant group as an audience who maybe went to see a couple films. So between the movies, two set of double features, people would go outside and the whole theater audience would all kind of stand in their groups and talk about this. Now, nobody got out of deep red and went, wow, that was quite a stylistic film. But really, it was about this. Here's the log line. And nobody got out of basket case and went, yeah, I mean, we all kind of know what this film is about, right? It's like a guy, he's got a basket, it turns out the Nobody did that. But for the witch who came from the sea, everybody felt the need to go, yeah, yeah, I mean, the plot, it's not as if the plot was weird. The plot is about a woman raped by her father, psychotic break, kills a lot of men. She's an aunt. She's in a friend group, (laughs) you know. And I found this odd jump where we're all tripping over each other to kind of go, no, 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 the plot is straightforward to really be illustrative of the fact that a log line does not completely encapsulate what a film is. Mm-hmm. That it was not simply the plot of the film that is strange because the plot of the film is a bit of a mystery. It's presented as a mystery and as time goes on, we flash back to enough, we piece it together but it was kind of everybody going out there and going, okay, so let's start with what this was about. We all get that, like, was this everybody else's take on what this was? Yeah. So people were all standing around trying to establish a baseline with which to 
explain what is otherwise like an almost undescribable movie. I also think one thing that's super important to the sort of like untouchable element of this film, the cover and the title absolutely <laughs> baffle anybody who's seen them and the movie. No witch, right? No witch. I mean, we'd assume, although... Witch. Very little coming from the sea. Yeah. She comes near the sea. There's a lot of water, you know, there's a water motif, certainly. But there's but also... It, it just sort of begs you to... It's a great art piece. It begs you to start going like, oh, the sea, how does that play into all of this? The cover is also like this fucking demonic folk art of that mm -hmm. big moment from The Little Mermaid where Ariel is like thrusting herself up on the rock. I mean, sure. You know. Yeah, it's one okay, of shorthand. Yeah, um, I gotcha. But it's uh, it, the the cover would have you believe that is very much a witch movie mm. to the point of approaching sword and sorcery, and not a movie that barely even like you'd have to you'd have to go out on a limb to try to invoke supernatural elements. Yeah, I mean the movie is takes place largely in a wood paneled apartment. It's yeah. about as unfortunately realistic as one can get. She knows a supernatural number of actors. And right. TV personalities, that's the supernatural <laughs> element. But, you know, this is a, a movie that I really wanted to spend some time figuring out because when I watched it, there's, a, there's kind of a delta between like, okay, I know what this movie's about, but also I know what I experienced and it's not what this movie's about. Right. And so what the fuck is going on here? And when we saw something, we knew sitting in that theater, just as you did watching it at home, that we were watching something special, magical, mm -hmm. you know, like mm -hmm. that there was something yeah. almost ethereal. Mm -hmm. if, if either one of us were inclined to the supernatural in our own lives, we would be like, oh yeah, that's a fucking haunted movie, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely, it's a movie that feels sort of like it couldn't have been made. It simply just exists. So, and you know, neither one of us believe that. So mm -hmm. we go, no, no, no. <laughs> we understand some things about filmmaking. So like, what the fuck here? It's so interesting that you had such a, a similarly uh, bizarre experience. Mm -hmm. Because when I saw this, I thought a lot of it, you know, I watched this on a very worn 35 millimeter print. Mm -hmm. And I didn't really appreciate things projected on film until I started watching a lot of repertory cinema because the it it truly is like seeing Grindhouse. Mm -hmm. You know, you are watching things that are beat up and it has some certain qualities that I can now pinpoint and change my experience. Mm -hmm. And they changed my experience in ways that actually made it a little different than yours. First of all, the movie is not nearly as depressing to me as most of the people see it. Mm -hmm. Because while a large part of the movie is eerily silent, it was never silent for me. I had these loops of warm hypnotic fuzz the entire time because of how degraded this print was. There was sort of an industrial soundscape constantly moving under the film that gave it a rhythm, like a beat. Yeah, And so you sort of, even the moments that were terribly silent you sort of nodded along to this weird machine loop of just what to me is a very pleasing and warm kind of fuzzy tone of just the you know the hum of silence underneath and then there were also these transitions 
every moment from one to the next in the film was aided by these hissy reels. You know, when you get film that's played on reels, the parts that I usually find are the most beat up are right before it switches to the next reel. Yeah. Right? So you get this sort of, um, you know what it does? It gives each scene like a natural crescendo. Not every fucking scene, but at least every reel. So there would be these moments where the film would start to have a tension. It would start to pull it would get grainier and hissier and it's not even grain, it's just damage and noise and little nicks and the film would start to move in a really abrasive way and pull until boom, it flipped to the next reel and all of that was alleviated. So there was this push and pull, this kind of like constant tension that would get alleviated that adds to this whole experience that honestly like isn't baked into the fucking movie. Mm-hmm. And you add that to like, um, you know, the experience of watching like an old Herschel Gordon Lewis movie like we'd see in Chicago where it had this color to it that I feel like, I don't know if it's true or not. This is part of the magic, but I feel like I've never gotten that Herschel Gordon Lewis color the same as the first time I saw it. Yeah. that You know what I mean? That like deep wooden brown magenta shadow kind of mm-hmm. look to it. Yeah that comes not from the color grade of the movie, but from the deterioration of the print. So th- suddenly there was all of this, I used the word delta before, I mean, that's, that's kind of where the magic was, is in the ways in which this film was beaten and now being presented. This is what got me thinking about the, the David Lynch, the red lamp, this sort of... Uh, mysteries that you feel like are within the movie, whether they're there or not. You start to imprint your own thoughts on this. I was watching something recently. I think it was on TikTok. It was a interview clip of David Lynch, who has nothing to do, by the way, with this movie. David Lynch, just a person whose movies we've seen. But, you know, Lynch movies, if you've seen them, and uh, you probably have, uh, maybe I shouldn't be presumptuous. If you've seen David Lynch movies, they don't make a lot of sense and uh, you pull for meaning and maybe it's in there, maybe it isn't. That's the great debate. I'm encapsulating all of David Lynch in like a five second soundbite here. Mm -hmm. But you know, he was asked in this clip about, uh, hey, you just did this movie, Mulholland Drive, Lost Highway. It could be any number of movies. Yep. And uh, you know, a lot of people say your movies don't make sense. Could you talk about that? What he said that I've been thinking about in other ways quite a bit lately is you know, he compared his films to music in that when you hear a song, for most people, you don't immediately go, what's the meaning of this song? When you go to put on a playlist, you you go, I won't speak on your behalf, Michael, but I go, what's the mood? Mm-hmm. What's the mood of the playlist? What kind of music do I want to listen to? I don't go, this is my all songs about cars playlist. Right. This is my all heartbreak songs, playlists, even if I do, I'm going for somber or I'm going, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm going for a tone. Right. Not to say no one's ever built a fucking playlist about cars, but like stop. Of course they have. Yeah. But not for that reason. Yeah. Stop writing emails. You you know what I'm I'm saying? Not to listen to, just to be ironic. People go, what genres do you listen to? What kind of music do you listen to? And you don't list a bunch of nouns. You list (laughs) genres. And if you don't list genres. What kind of music are you into? Hunting. 
you know, I list a lot of feelings because I don't know a lot about music. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I might say dark wave or I might say hip hop or whatever, but you know, oh, I have some aggressive music. I listen to a lot of melancholic music, whatever pretentious nonsense I say to people, Mm -hmm. but you know, I'm listing feelings. And Lynch was talking in this clip about how we're so comfortable just hearing the feeling of music and describing that feeling to other people. And we don't feel the need to impose narrative structure on it. We just kind of sit with it and it gives us feelings and it's, you know, it's something that we bounce ourselves off of. And I was thinking about this a lot with The Witch from the Sea, you know, especially as we were talking about log lines uh, when we started this year, that I like movies that don't have a straightforward narrative. Even though I think the, the Witch from the Sea does, I think by the time you get to the end, like you can log line the movie. But it's not really about that, is it? It's about mm-hmm. like, why do we all feel weird after watching this? Mm-hmm. And where is that, you know, like how, what are all of the other parts of filmmaking that make this feel so strange? And it's everything, really. It's the cinematography for sure. It's the environment you and I watch this in. You know, they were both like pretty magic environments, right? You're watching it late at night, unknown movie, seeing it with a friend. What is he thinking? You don't speak of it after. Like we both came on this show and instead of immediately loglining, we were like, let me tell you about my experience watching The Witch from the Mm -hmm. Sea. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when we come on and we think about narrative and we talk about loglines to start talking about themes which we did a bit, the sea, things underwater, links to the the traumatic experience. We, by necessity, don't talk about what in my mind is the opposite, which is simply how did it make you feel? Right. The more important part of cinema, really, to me, which is like, what was the feeling you got and why did you get that? That would be such a difficult thing to try and pair a movie with though yeah. because I yeah. feel like it's so subjective 99% of the time and that 1% it's the witch who came from the sea <laughs> <laughs> alright we're not going to find a better place to uh, to end it I, you know do you want to hear a podcast uh, about the 50s 60s kind of like obsession with psychological nonsense and how this movie falls into that do you want us to talk about how there's no sound in the flashbacks and that's really creepy how it sounds like she's underwater. Like, yeah, I mean, that stuff is in there too. But I was happy talking about the magic today. The, mm-hmm. the sort of can't put your finger on it magic. And I'm happy leaving it at that. No, I feel good about that. Website is doublefeature.fm, doublefeatureshow at iCloud.com. What else you got for me? I mean, I, I suspect we probably, hopefully, still have executive producers. If so, that's because of our Patreon. <laughs> Where is the Patreon and what is on it? The Patreon is on the World Wide Web. Uh, you can reach it by going to www. Don't, oh, <laughs> cut that out. Cut, no one needs it. Go to patreon.com forward slash double feature. And... Um, because of you, because of the listeners who have already gone here and given us some money, we're going to bring you an existential bird double feature next week. Congratulations, Charles Crawford, Ben Acker, Brad Parker, and Joachim Vernon for the first of what may be many existential bird double features. <laughs> if, this is, if this is a motif you guys like. If this is a success. <laughs> if you guys love existential bird double features, just kick some more money in the Patreon, recommend your existential bird films, but two you can't pick because we're doing them next week. 
Uh, a pigeon sat on a branch reflecting on existence, which is a film we're going to pair with Cockfighter. I plan to watch one of these in a theater, by the way. <laughs> Two of the, these are... <laughs> no joke. One of these movies is very obviously sort of existential, and the other is shockingly existential. Oh my God. It's gonna, I'm actually very much looking forward to this pair next week, and I'm really... I, I think... Uh, you haven't seen Cockfighter, correct? I haven't seen either of these yet. I'm really, I, I actually haven't seen the, I, I've, I've read a lot about the one where the pigeon's like, you know, thinking. <laughs> but uh, I haven't seen that one. But Cockfighter is this exploitation movie from the 70s, completely separate from our other uh, conversation this year. And um, it's, it, it, it wouldn't fit in that conversation because it's doing this whole other bizarre thing. Bizarre thing, double feature, this time with birds. Watch more fucking film. Bye.